I hope you have your Bibles with you. If you do, please turn with me to the Old Testament. Keeping with our theme this morning, we're going to read Psalm 46. Again, God revealing to us who He is, who He is for us in times that are uncertain, how He is our fortress. Psalm 46, we're going to read all 11 verses, and we remember together that this is God's inerrant, infallible truth. God revealing Himself to us. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now with your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 28. Again, if you have printed off the order of service, or you have it there on your device, you'll notice that I printed these 10 verses below the scripture reading. So if you want to follow along there, you may do so. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of Acts 28, continuing our study in the book of Acts. Now, they just went through a harrowing storm. They have just been shipwrecked across some rocks. They have just begun to disembark their broken ship, some swimming, others walking on planks, and now they are on the island of Malta. And Luke writes, After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They, the native people, were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came. And were cured. 
They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your promise that your word never returns to you empty, void. It never returns to you without achieving the purpose for which you sent it. I pray for us as a fragmented group this morning who aren't gathered here at this location, but who are gathered around your word, that your spirit would do a mighty work among the families who are worshiping together, among the individuals who may be watching this, even among those who may not be a part of our church, that your spirit would do the work that you sent this word into them for. We trust you for this work. This is nothing that we can do. This is what we depend upon you for, the work of your spirit. And we ask him to work mightily in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we were together here, two weeks ago this morning, when I opened up God's word, I did so with these questions. How hard is life for you now? How high is the stress you are experiencing? Are you at a point right now where you feel like the world is against you? Those are the questions that I asked at the beginning of the sermon two weeks ago. Little did we know that we would be here this morning. We saw in Acts 27 how Paul and the others were battered by hurricane force winds while they were at sea for two plus weeks. We saw how people on that boat, including Luke, the author of Acts, were losing hope. We saw, too, that that hopelessness gave way to selfishness. Many were wanting to escape, to abandon ship, to go on the lifeboat and swim away. But Paul spoke into each one of those situations, into the hopelessness and into the selfishness, into the panic and the despair, and he reminded them of who God was. He reminded them of what God was doing. This morning we find ourselves with Paul and the other 276 who were with him on the ship, now shipwrecked on the island of Malta. I want to together think again and remember the context of our passage. Paul has been under Roman guard for over two years. We remember that. Paul had appealed to Caesar, which required then that he be transported to Rome, that his appeal might be heard by Caesar. As a prisoner on the ship, they make their way to Rome by sea. So far we've seen in the life of Paul, really, but especially now, that nothing is going on as they had planned. For weeks, which will end up turning into months, they have not been able to go where they need to go. Their plans to get Paul and the rest to Rome have been upended. And it's through no fault of their own. It's not only that their ship has run aground on the island of Malta, but in many ways their lives and their plans have become shipwrecked too. This morning Luke gives us a brief snapshot of what life on the island of Malta was like. He condenses three months of their stay there into these ten brief verses. For our purposes, I want us to think about these ten verses in a way that I hope will help and encourage us in the current and challenging situation that we all find ourselves in. How did the Maltese islanders, unbelievers to be sure, receive and respond to these shipwrecked visitors? And how then did Paul and the others receive and respond to their hosts? Those are really the only two parts this morning. We're going to think about the Maltese islanders first, and then very briefly, 
Paul, and I think we can infer at least the other Christians that are with him. Those are our two pieces, Maltese Islanders and Paul. Let's first think about the Maltese Islanders together. Notice what Luke writes in verse 1. But notice especially how he writes it. Look at it there. He writes, After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Now, this is no throwaway line, so let's not just read over it. Notice that Luke is writing in a passive voice. That's what I meant by how he writes it. They were brought safely through. And remember, this is written by one who was once hopeless in the midst of these hurricane-forced winds. He's now testifying to the fact that they were brought safely through. God did the bringing. Verse 1 is Luke's testimony to God's faithfulness, something that we've already sung and read about this morning. God was faithful in and through extended life-threatening storms while the ship and the passengers and the crew were being blown off course. God was faithful when they were all hungry, not being able to eat in two weeks, sick due to the seasickness. God was faithful in the midst of their weakness, fearing their own death at times. God was faithful. God did the bringing. Now, I know you've had similar experiences or you've loved someone who has a serious surgical procedure, a long-term illness, even our current circumstances. There's nothing for us to do other than be wise and listening to the professionals. We can do nothing about our situation. And yet on the other side of situations where we feel completely out of control and yet we are tense and perhaps sometimes in despair, we get to the other side and we breathe a sigh of relief. The tension in our shoulders lessens. We relax. That's a testimony to God bringing you through. Today, in the middle of all the craziness, we must believe and we must know that God is with us. We must believe and we must know that God is right now, this morning, bringing us through. And I think this would be something that we should make a matter of prayer that we would pray that when we get on the other side of this pandemic and even on the other side of all the ripple effects that will sure follow this pandemic, that we together will have testimonials. We too, like Luke, will be able to tell the story of how God brought us through all of it. Let's hang on to that and let's pray that God gives us eyes to see and hearts to receive how indeed he is bringing us through. So the 276 swim or walk across planks onto the island, and they're greeted by what Luke tells us is a very hospitable and incredibly kind people. Now picture it, 276 cold, wet, shivering people, been through an incredibly harrowing experience on this ship, battered for two weeks by the storms, and now they make their way onto the island and what do the natives do? But they begin to seek after their comfort. They seek to serve them by starting a fire immediately. Now the islanders see an immediate need and they do what they can to meet it. Remember too that these islanders played host to these 276 strangers for three months. Winter months. Caring for them. Probably providing shelter and food. The necessities. That's why Luke says their kindness is unusual. 
but they were unbelieving people too. Look there in verse 3. Luke tells us that as Paul was helping by bringing more firewood to the islanders for the fire that they had started, there was a snake, a viper, that was kind of hiding in the bundle of sticks that he was bringing, probably hibernating in a sense. And Luke says, as Paul gets closer to the fire and as this snake is warmed up, he lashes out and bites Paul on the hand. And the way that Luke describes it, it wasn't simply a strike. But what Luke says is the snake fastened himself on Paul's hand. Now look at verse 4. Luke says, the natives saw and said. Now Luke gives us a little bit of a window here, and I want us to think about it just briefly together. These hospitable people saw the viper strike. They saw the viper hang on to Paul's hand, and then they interpreted what they believed that meant. They brought their worldview to bear in interpreting what they were seeing before them with Paul and this viper hanging off his hand. So they had a belief system. They understood their world in a certain way. And we see what they believe about their world in what Luke says they say in verse 4. Paul had to be a murderer. The sea tried to bring its justice to the murdering Paul but he was able to escape now on the island of Malta. Now they say justice, perhaps the God justice, will punish him for the crimes he has certainly committed. They understood the snake bite as to be divine justice from one of their gods. Now before we begin to mock these islanders too much, I want us to understand that every one of us do this to some degree. It's inescapable. We interpret what we see and what we hear through a particular belief system, through a particular grid. And the way we know what grid we are interpreting all that we see and hear is the way we respond to what we see and hear. Just as in this case, their response shows us that the island people were, number one, very superstitious people. They were also a polytheistic people, a people who believed in many gods, And so that's how they understood and interpreted what was happening to Paul. But they continue. After Paul shook the snake off into the fire, the islanders watched and waited for a long time, Luke says in verse 6. Thinking, of course, surely the God of justice would bring her justice to Paul, who they believe now deserves that justice. So they waited for him to swell up from the bite or to simply die. Seeing that no misfortune befell Paul, they do a complete 180, and now they see Paul as a god. I know it sounds ridiculous to us, but worldviews are very funny things. When we're so wrapped up in our worldview, the strangest things to outsiders can feel and seem so consistent to us. Horribly wrong, dangerously wrong these islanders were. But to them, they were thinking well about the situation. Now, we don't know much about these hospitable but superstitious island people, but we do know that unbelieving worldviews come from somewhere. These people were isolated on the island of Malta. They probably had little exposure to the outside world. A very different world than ours where traveling comes easy and information is at our fingertips and the exchange of ideas happen among people of all types every day. These people saw their world and tried to make sense of it the best they could. 
but their darkened eyes couldn't recognize the rule and reign of God. So they had to interpret and understand all the uncontrollable events that they experienced, and they had to try to make sense out of that. The storms, the snake bites, the disease that God uses Paul to heal. And we hear here the way they made sense of it was with a whole shelf full of gods. So these are their conclusions. First, that Paul was a murderer, and then second, that he was a god. All of it based on what they believed and understood about their world, a very isolated world, a world that was only informed by the natural order of things on the island of Malta, rooted deeply in unbelief. But they were hospitable, and as we will see, a grateful people. Paul and many others were welcomed into the neighborhood of the island chieftain, Luke tells us, a man by the name of Publius. And Luke tells us that the Lord Jesus, through Paul, was able to heal Publius's father, one who was sick with dysentery and fever. And of course, as it happened with Jesus, it happens here. Once word gets out that Paul is able to bring healing to those who are sick, all those on the island who are sick come to him. You see that in verses 7 and 8. So after three months of serving in ministry, Paul and all the others boarded a ship. And Luke tells us they were showered with honoraria. That's that word there. When someone speaks uh, on behalf of me when I'm out of town or someone plays for Elizabeth when she's not able to be here, we give them an honorarium. It's a gift of appreciation for the ways in which they served us. That's what the Maltese Islanders are doing for the ship of 267. So we've met the Maltese Islanders, unbelievers, but very kind, very superstitious, very grateful, very much a product of their isolation and their culture, and very, very spiritually lost. Let's look at Paul, and by inference, I think Luke and Aristarchus, the other Christians that are with him. Remembering the context, the trauma of the two weeks in destructive storms, immediately being shipwrecked on Malta, we now want to zone in a bit on Paul. One thing we notice about Paul is that he continues to be misunderstood, right? Whether it was the Jewish unbelievers back in Caesarea or any place that he had traveled previous to Caesarea or these natives, Paul is never understood or seen to be the man he is, a saved sinner, one who seeks to minister to those in the name of Christ Jesus. Here he is understood first to be a murderer and then a god, and neither was true, of course. But what Luke focuses on more than anything here in our ten brief verses is how Paul, even in the midst of this hardship, continues to be a servant. Did you notice first where this was hinted at? It was there in verse 3. We already looked at it briefly. Luke tells us the islanders kindle the fire, and while they do that, Paul chips in. Paul is not gathering around the fire, rubbing his hands, seeking to get his clothes dried. He goes out and he works. He wants to gather wood for the fire that others may be comforted by it. He serves. But the obvious way Paul serves, what Luke emphasizes in our passage, is how he served those who were sick. As we've seen already in verses 7 and 8, Paul serves those on the island who were sick. As was typical in Jesus' day, as we said, now in Paul's day, when there is a healer among them, the people come out of the woodwork in order to be healed. Paul, an outsider, a stranger, one accused and misunderstood, once as a murderer, then a god, 
served the people of the island. We have no reason to think that he only served a day. They were there for three months. And for three months, Paul served them. Now, as believers, certain that God is taking us somewhere, knowing together that God reigns even over this pandemic, understanding that nothing is falling outside of his control, how this morning can we think about how these truths inform us? To be sure, we're not shipwrecked, but we are navigating something that we've never experienced before. That's what we're doing here this morning. It's not normal for this room to be empty. It's not desirable or even optimum. But we believe there are ways in which we can continue to operate and minister, even in these difficult times and with these restrictions. So how do we, in appreciating and taking seriously these restrictions, how do we together as a church live faithfully in the midst of something that we neither planned nor do we control? Maybe the first lesson might be in the negative. Let's not become like the Maltese Islanders. What I mean by that is if we're not careful with this going on before us now, we can enter into a self-contained, isolated little world, especially while we self-isolate. We can begin to daily keep refreshing the websites, trying to stay on top of the numbers of those infected. How fast is the virus spreading in the world, in the country, in Texas, in Tarrant, Dallas, Wise County? And how many are dying from it? We can keep on our 24-hour news channel hearing the forecasts and predictions. Uh, some are oftenly, often wildly different. Many of them are contradictory. The most pessimistic forecasts and predictions set against the most optimistic forecasts and predictions. So if we're not careful, we can become like the islanders, only feeding our hearts and brains with the latest news and predictions kind of cocooning ourselves in this world of crisis and then beginning to only see the world through the lens of what we're experiencing now. How will this affect me? How is it going to affect my family, my job, my freedom, my finances, my security? The stress and the angst that comes with those unanswerables oftentimes bears the fruit of despair and discouragement. So let's not become like the Maltese Islanders. Instead, we must feed our souls with God's truth, truth about himself, truth about the world he created, truth about his reign over this world, truth about you. We should do that all the time, but maybe especially even now when all kinds of voices are fighting for our attention. Here are some ideas as you're hunkered down in your house. Think about focusing in on these particular parts of God's word and see if God doesn't use it to open your vision and your heart to him. Think about looking over, studying, living in the book of Romans for a while. The first 11 chapters are the rich truth of who God is and what he has done for his people. And then chapters 12 through 16 are instruction on what we do with that now. If this is who God is, how then do we live in light of that? Ephesians is the same thing, a bit shorter. The first three chapters, forever truth about God and who he is, how he's revealed himself to us. The last three chapters about what kind of impact that should have on how we live. Think about looking at maybe just the first two chapters of Colossians. Incredibly, gloriously encouraging and also very instructive. 
Maybe first and second Peter, two letters Peter wrote. To who? A suffering people. He knew the challenges that came with being in the midst of suffering, of not knowing what's coming next. And he wrote first and second Peter that he might direct the gaze of those who were suffering to the Lord Jesus Christ and encourage them in the midst of that suffering. Think about the book of James. Who is James written to? A fragmented people who were suffering. People who could not meet regularly, but who still needed the instruction and encouragement of God's word. Although somewhat dense, revelation would be worth your time. It paints a picture of what suffering really looks like, what the source of that suffering is, but most especially, it shows us the assured victory that is coming in Christ Jesus upon his return. You can't go wrong with the Psalms. You won't go wrong with any of the Gospels. John gives you a little bit more detail in a different way. Mark is going to read for you a bit faster. The first six chapters of Genesis, or maybe go all the way to chapter 11, to remember again what God did when he formed the world, how he continued to come in and save the world for himself. If you decide to live in Job, only spend as much as you need to on the first part, but live and bathe and immerse yourself in the last four chapters. All of these will nourish your soul. So don't consume only or predominantly what is going on in our world right now. We need to stay informed. I understand that. But get what you need and then get out. Spend time in God's word. Remind yourself who he is. Remind yourself what he's doing. Remind yourself what he's calling you to. Remind yourself of what he's promised to do. Either in this life or in the life to come, he's going to bring us safely to the other side. Absolutely no doubt we're in a moment where we have more questions than answers right now. If you're like me, you're going to bed with a growing pile of unanswerables. But no, without exception, the fruit of all that unknown is anxiousness, stress, which could grow into discouragement and despair. So how do you fight that? You go back to what you do know, what you know and who you know what God has revealed himself to be for you. So that's the first thing. Nourish your souls with God's word, with what you know and who you know. Second, we see in our passage, and I think this is important, is that Paul continues to serve. Everyone we know and everyone we don't know are experiencing the same thing right now. Think about that. This, in God's providence, is a wonderfully unique opportunity when in our lifetimes has the entire world been on the same page, threatened by the same thing, suffering through the same challenges, most homebound, hearing the same news in general? Think about the fantastic opportunity to connect God has given to us. And I think first the priority is to connect with one another, check on each other, share with one another the particular stresses and the anxiousness that's going on in your heart. Understand that we all get what we are going through. We are sharing an experience, and yet we are so unique that each one of us is bumping into that experience in very unique and different ways. Share that with one another. I would even encourage you, assuming the current restrictions are in place and that we ought to continue to abide by them, consider maybe a couple of families gathering together to eat as long as it's 10 or fewer. 
Can you determine this week to FaceTime or text or call one of your fellow church members just to check in? Would you be willing to consider to allow yourself a unique level of vulnerability, so much so that you will share with that person that you connect with the specific ways that you are struggling and that you will commit to doing that whether they ask you or not? Ask others to pray for you. Give them specific ways that they can be praying for you and pray for others. We always need each other, but we really need each other most especially now when we can't be together. What is true of us is also true of our neighbors, right? Literally, those who are living on our blocks or in the apartment complex with you, they too are going through what we're going through. And if they are unbelievers, they're beginning to understand and interpret the current crisis in particular ways. What a fantastic opportunity to follow Paul and serve them. Let's consider them our Maltese Islanders. We may not be picking up a bundle of sticks to place on a fire. We are not able to heal them of their diseases, but we certainly can and should serve them. On page 7 of the bulletin that I posted on our website, you'll see that there is something that I am asking you to consider using. Very basic, but it's a little piece of paper that you can cut out and drop in the mailboxes of your neighbors or tape on the door of those living in the apartment complex with you. Not an original idea for me. There's a number of them going around. And if you want to customize this more, let me know and I'll send you a version that you can edit. But we have more in common experientially with our neighbors in this moment than perhaps ever before or ever again. What would it mean to them? What would it mean for the glory of Jesus? What would it mean for you and your future relationships if they received that little note from you saying, can I do anything for you? Let me know, write it down and drop it in my mailbox. Leave it at my doorstep. I'm a Christian. I'd like to pray for you. Are there ways in which I can pray for you in the midst of what's going on? That's all. And for those of you who are introverted, you may never have to see them. You drop this note in their mailbox. You drop it at their doorstep and there are instructions for them to do the same. So you're passing notes back and forth, but you're serving those who are experiencing the same crisis that we are. And please understand, I'm not suggesting this as kind of a bait and switch. You know what I mean by that? That we're serving our neighbors as a means to evangelizing them. That we begin to see them as a potential gospel project. No, what I'm simply suggesting is that our fellow human beings, our neighbors, unbelievers, or not, are experiencing the same kind of angst that all of us are. Many of them anxious, many of them suffering, many of them homebound. If God uses our genuine acts of love and charity, our genuine acts of service to our neighbors to bring them to faith, and we will celebrate and praise him for this. But our goal, or at least the goal that I'm suggesting, is a simple one. To love your neighbor through this service, simply for their sake and for the glory of Jesus, throwing a little kindling on the fire. Did you notice in our passage we didn't hear one word of gospel preaching from Paul that Luke recorded? Now, I have no doubt in three months, Paul certainly gave the islanders the good news of Jesus. Why didn't Luke record how Paul preached the gospel? Why didn't Luke tell us how many gathered to hear him as he was healing the crowds? We have no idea. But what Luke does write down and emphasize is Paul's service 
to these unbelieving and native people. Again, maybe God will open doors to gospel proclamation as a fruit of your service to unbelieving neighbors around you. Let's pray that it will. But let's not let that be the motivation. Serve them for service sake, for Jesus' sake. Ask God what relationships he will begin to form through these acts of service during these times. And what fruit will he allow to be born from those relationships? Not in the next week, two, three, not in the next six months maybe. But will you be one who your neighbor remembers when we went through that coronavirus scare? You were the only one outside of family that reached out to them? Here's the side benefit of this kind of other focused service. It gets us out of our own head. It makes us feel good when we serve others. When we begin to think of others and when we begin to actively act on their behalf, God blesses that for our own souls. So, what's the counsel and encouragement we receive from both Acts 27 and Acts 28, these first 10 chapters? It's simple, but it's profound at the same time, and it's not new. Love God by feeding our souls with his truth and love others by serving and praying for them. That's it. Loving God and loving others, the two greatest commandments. The easiest to remember and one size fits all application to this or any other sermon, no matter what it is that we're living through. Let me pray for us. God, this is an opportunity for this church, Grace Community, a church now fragmented and scattered, for this church to thrive, to be those who will serve those you've placed around us in our neighborhood, in our apartment complexes. We pray that you would encourage us to do this very thing, but I also pray that you would continue by your spirit to move us to feed on the truth of who you are. So much noise and much of it is so discouraging. Plans that we had made are being disrupted. There are things that we wanted to happen that apparently may not happen. Yet you are the God over all of this. And if left to ourselves, we can get in quite a funk wondering what's next. Pull us out of that and nourish our souls with who you are and what it is that you've done for us in Christ Jesus and who you have called us to be. This is, again, the work of your spirit, and I pray that you would do it by his grace. Amen.